Chapter Fourteen of the Life of Clara Barton, Volume Two by William Barton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Fourteen, Clara Barton in Cuba. For many years before the outbreak of the war with Spain, Clara Barton had been interested in the situation in Cuba. In a letter written from Washington, February eighth. 1874, twenty-four years before the outbreak of the war with Spain, she said, Spain is still fighting her only or almost sole remaining colony, Cuba. Spain had once immense colonies, but she has been so tyrannical and so careless of their welfare that she has lost nearly all. And Cuba, you know, has an insurgent army of so-called rebels fighting for their freedom. If she ever gets free, she must come to the United States, as she is too small to stand alone against the greed of great powers which will try to gobble her up for her riches in soil and products. The Spanish authorities have just published a new list of orders, very stringent and they hope to crush out the cuban insurrection in six months you must keep watch of that too and see how it ends it will be history by and by to whom cuba belongs and while one has to study so hard to learn past history it is not worth the while to let slip that which all the time is making in our own day and generation Comprenez-vous? Her forecast of events proved to be reliable. The relations between Spain and Cuba grew more and more strained. A part of the Spanish policy for stamping out the rebellion in Cuba was the concentration of that portion of the civilian population believed to be hostile to the Spanish government in concentration camps from which the cry of distress was continuous. Sympathy in America grew more and more pronounced, but for a long time there appeared no way in which the United States could offer relief. The difficulties of the situation were the greater because the Spanish government believed, with some reason, that a considerable part of the American sentiment favorable to relief in Cuba was intermixed with political designs. There were, indeed, two groups of people demanding relief for Cuba. Clara Barton thus describes them. They might have properly been classed under two distinct heads. The one merely the friends of humanity in its simple sense, the other, friends of humanity also, but what seemed to them a broader and deeper sense, far more complex. They sought to remove a cause as well as an effect, and the muffled cry of Cuba Libre became their watchword. Naturally, any general movement by the people in favor of the former must have the effect to diminish the contributions of the latter, too small at best for their purpose, and must be wisely discouraged. Thus, 
whenever an unsuspecting movement was set on foot by some good-hearted unsophisticated body of people and began to gain favor with the public and the press immediately would appear most convincing counter-paragraphs to the effect that it would be useless to send relief especially by the red cross first it would not be permitted to land next whatever it took would be either seized outright or wheedled out of hand by the spanish authorities in havana that the spaniards would be only too glad to have the united states send food and money for the use of havana again that the red cross being international would affiliate with spain and ignore the cuban red cross already working here and there as if poor cuba with no national government or treaty-making power could have a legitimate red cross that other nations could recognize or work with miss barton had but recently returned from armenia her experience with the turkish government made her keenly aware of all the obstructions which an unsympathetic government can put in the way of philanthropic relief it was useless to attempt any assistance for the sufferers in cuba unless miss barton had the full approval of the american government and in addition the sympathetic cooperation of the spanish government but if she secured the consent of the government of spain there was real danger that her work of relief would result less in the succor of the distressed people of cuba than in the aid and comfort of the armies of their oppressors spain could not be expected to look with favor upon any kind of relief which promised to strengthen the cuban rebellion at length however the situation grew intolerable it became evident that the united states must go into cuba either with an army of occupation or an agency for the relief of suffering as a matter of fact the united states went in both capacities but the red cross went in before the stars and stripes miss barton herself has told the story of the invasion this state of things continued through the year of eighteen ninety seven but as the present year of ninety eight opened the reports of suffering that came were not to be borne quietly and i decided to confer with our government and learn if it had objections to the red cross taking steps of its own in direct touch with the people of the country and proposing their cooperation in the work of relief i beg pardon for the personality of the statement which follows but it is history i am asked to write deciding to refer my inquiry to the secretary of state i called at his department to see him but learned that he was with the president this suiting my purpose i followed to the executive mansion was kindly informed that the president and secretary were engaged on a very important matter and had given orders not to be interrupted as i turned to leave i was recalled with 
Wait a moment, Miss Barton, and let me present your card. Returning immediately, I entered the president's room to find these two men in a perplexed study over the very matter which had called me. Distressed by the reports of the terrible condition of things so new to us, they were seeking some remedy, and producing their notes just taken, revealed the fact that they had decided to call me into conference. The conference was then held. It was decided to form a committee in New York to ask money and material of the people at large to be shipped to Cuba for the relief of the reconcentrados on that island. The call would be made in the name of the president, and the committee naturally known as the President's Committee for Cuban Relief. I was courteously asked if I would go to New York and assume the oversight of that committee. I declined in favor of Mr. Stephen E. Barton, second vice president of the National Red Cross, who, on being immediately called, accepted, and with Mr. Charles Shiron as treasurer, and Mr. Lewis Klopsch of the Christian Herald, as the third member, the committee was at once established, since known as the Central Cuban Relief Committee. The committee was to solicit aid in money and material for the suffering reconcentrados in Cuba, and forward the same to the Council General at Havana for distribution. My consent was then asked by all parties to go to Cuba and aid in the distribution of the shipments of food as they should arrive. After all, I had so long offered, I could not decline, and hoping my going would not be misunderstood by our authorities there, who would regard me simply as a willing assistant, I accepted." the consul general had asked the new york committee to send to him an assistant to take charge of the warehouse and supplies in havana this request was also referred to me and recommending mr j k elwell a nephew of general j j elwell of cleveland ohio a gentleman who had resided six years in santiago in connection with its large shipping interests a fine business man and speaking spanish i decided to accompany him taking no member of my own staff but going simply in the capacity of an individual helper in a work already assigned on saturday february sixth we left washington for cuba via Jacksonville, Tampa, and Key West. Thus, with that simple beginning, with no thought on the part of any person but to do unobtrusively the little that could be done for the lessening of the woes of a small island of people, whom adverse circumstances, racial differences, the inevitable results of a struggle for freedom, the fate of war, and the terrible features of a system of subjugation of a people, which, if true, is too dark to name, was commenced the relief movement of 1898, 
which has spread not alone over the entire United States of America, from Maine to California, from Vancouver to the Gulf of Mexico, but from the Indias on the west to the Indias on the east, and uniting in its free will offerings the gifts of one-third of the best nations in the world. Miss Barton, with her cargo of supplies, reached Havana on February ninth, 1898. Her supplies were unloaded and stored in a convenient warehouse. She began her work of visitation and found scenes beside which, as she wrote, some which she had witnessed in Armenia seemed humane. Six days after her arrival, the main was blown up. The appalling news reached the United States and brought with it the practical certainty of war. The one cheering message that came as an echo of the explosion was Clara Barton's telegram, I am with the wounded. The comfort of these words found expression in a little poem by James Clarence Harvey, which was published immediately in the Christian Herald and widely copied. I am with the wounded, flashed along the wire, from the isle of Cuba, swept with sword and fire. Angel sweet of mercy, may your cross of red cheer the wounded living, bless the wounded dead. I am with the starving, let the message run, from this stricken island when this task is done. Food and money plenty, wait at your command. Give in generous measure, fill each outstretched hand. I am with the happy, this we long to hear from the isle of cuba trembling now in fear may the great disaster touch the hearts of men and in god's great mercy bring back peace again miss barton thus related the story of the sinking of the main and the work that followed the heavy clerical work of that fifteenth day of February held not only myself, but Mr. Elwell as well, busy at our writing tables until late at night. The house had grown still, the noises on the streets were dying away, when suddenly the table shook from under our hands, the great glass door opening onto the veranda, facing the sea flew open everything in the room was in motion or out of place the deafening roar of such a burst of thunder as perhaps one never heard before and off to the right out over the bay the air was filled with a blaze of light and this in turn filled with black specks like huge specters flying in all directions and it faded away. The bells rang, the whistles blew, and voices in the street were heard for a moment. Then all was quiet again. I supposed it to be the bursting of some mammoth mortar or explosion of some magazine. A few hours later came the terrible news of the main. 
Mr. Elwell was early among the wreckage and returned to give me news. She is destroyed. There is no room for comment. Only who is lost, who has escaped, and what can be done for them. They tell us that most of the officers were dining out and thus saved, that Captain Sigsby is saved. It is thought that 250 men are lost, that 100 are wounded, but still living, some in hospital, some on small boats as picked up. The chief engineer, a quiet, resolute man, and the second officer met me as I passed out of the hotel for the hospital. The latter stopped me, saying, Miss Barton, do you remember you told me on board the main that the Red Cross was at our service? For whenever anything took place with that ship, either in naval action or otherwise, someone would be hurt. That she was not of a structure to take misfortune lightly, I recalled the conversation and the impression which led to it. Such strength would never go out easily. We proceeded to the Spanish hospital, San Ambrosia, to find thirty to forty wounded, bruised, cut, burned. They had been crushed by timbers, cut by iron, scorched by fire, and blown sometimes high in the air sometimes driven down through the red-hot furnace-room and out into the water senseless to be picked up by some boat and gotten ashore their wounds are all over them heads and faces terribly cut internal wounds arms legs feet and hands burned to the live flesh the hair and beards are singed, showing that the burns were from fire and not steam. Besides, further evidence shows that the burns are where the parts were uncovered. If burned by steam, the clothing would have held the steam and burned all the deeper. As it is, it protected from the heat and the fire and saved their limbs, whilst the faces, hands, and arms are terribly burned. Both men and officers are very reticent in regard to the cause, but all declare it could not have been the result of an internal explosion, that the boilers were at the two ends of the ship, and these were the places from which all escaped who did escape. The trouble was evidently from the center of the ship, where no explosive machinery was located. I thought to take the names as I passed among them, and drawing near to the first in a long line, I asked his name. He gave it with his address. Then, peering out from among the bandages and cotton about his breast and face, he looked earnestly at me and asked, Isn't this Miss Barton? Yes. I thought it must be. I knew you were here, and thought you would come to us. I am so thankful for us all. I asked if he wanted anything. Yes, there is a lady to whom I was to be married. The time is up. She will be frantic if she hears of this accident and nothing more. 
Could you telegraph her? Certainly. The dispatch went at once, wounded but saved. Alas, it was only for a little. Two days later, and it was all over. I passed on from one to another, till twelve had been spoken to and the names taken. There were only two of the number who did not recognize me. Their expressions of grateful thanks, spoken under such conditions, were too much. I passed the pencil to another hand and stepped aside. I am glad to say that every kindness was extended to them. Miss Mary Wilberforce had been at once installed as nurse, and faithful work she performed. The Spanish hospital attendants were tireless in their attentions. Still, there was boundless room for luxuries and comforts, delicate foods, grapes, oranges, wines, cordials, anything that could soothe or interest, and no opportunity was lost or cost or pains spared, and when two days later the streets filled with hearses bearing reverently the bodies of martyred heroes, and the crepe and the flowers mingled in their tributes of tenderness and beauty, and the muffled drums and tolling bells spoke all that inanimate substance could speak of sorrow and respect, and the silent marching tread of armies fell upon the listening ear. The heart grew sick in the midst of all this pageant, and the thoughts turned away to the far land, smitten with horror, and the homes wailing in bitter grief for these, so lone, so lost, and one saw only the nodding plumes over their bier to wave, and God's own hand and that lonely land to lay them in their grave. In the days after the sinking of the main, Miss Spartan led an active life. She journeyed through the nearer provinces, established bases of supplies, and returned to Havana, not only unmolested, but with every evidence of appreciation on the part of the Spanish authorities and the Cuban people. The Red Cross supplies were distributed, though in places their distribution was impeded. Miss Barton tells of a delayed distribution at Matanzas, the delay apparently having been accomplished with intent, and how well-meant private philanthropy undertook direct action. It is not strange that from this event went out the cry of starving Matanzas, although at that moment, in addition to our four tons of goods previously sent, the fern lay in the harbor under the American flag, with fifty tons of american supplies and fifty rods away lay the virgin under the same colors bearing a cargo of fifty-two tons from the philadelphia red cross faithfully sent through the new york committee by request so uncontrollable a thing is human excitement that these facts could not be taken in and the charities of our whole country were called afresh to arms over starving Matanzas, 
which was at that moment by far the best provided city in Cuba. The result of this was an entire train of supplies from Kansas, which remaining there after the blockade, not being consigned to the Red Cross, was, we were informed, distributed among the Spanish soldiery by the Spanish officials. Goods bearing the mark of the Red Cross were everywhere respected, and we have no record of any of our goods having been appropriated by the Spanish authorities. When the methods of relief had been well organized, the work of distribution went mainly to others, while Clara Barton devoted her own energy to the maintenance of pleasant relations with the Spanish authorities. This she was able to do until the very end, but events far beyond her control were inevitably driving the two nations into war. Miss Barton tells the story in the following record, based upon the entries in her own diary. I met the Spanish authorities, not merely as a bearer of relief, but as the president of the American National Red Cross, with all the principles of neutrality which that implied, and received in return the unfailing courtesy which the conditions demanded. From our first interview to the last sad day when we decided that it was better to withdraw, giving up all efforts at relief, and leave those thousands of poor dying wretches to their fate, there was never any change in the attitude of the Spanish authorities, General Blanco or his staff, toward myself or any member of my staff. One of my last visits before the blockade was to the palace. The same kindly spirit prevailed. I was begged not to leave the island through fear of them. Every protection in their power would be given, but there was no guarantee for what might occur in the exigencies of war. I recall an incident of that day. General Blanco led me to the large salon, the walls of which are covered with the portraits of the Spanish officials for generations past, and pointing to the Spanish authorities under date of 1776, said, with a look of sadness, When your country was in trouble, Spain was the friend of America. Now Spain is in trouble, America is her enemy. I knew no answer for this but silence, and we passed out through the corridor of guards, he handing me to my carriage with a farewell and a blessing. I could but recall my experience with the Turkish officials and government, where I entered with such apprehension and left with such marks of cordiality. During this interval of time, important business had called me to Washington, and I only returned to Cuba some time during the second week of April. On April 25, 1898, Congress declared war against Spain. For two weeks it had been apparent that such a declaration was to come. American citizens were ordered by the United States government to leave Havana, 
some days before the outbreak of hostilities. The situation sent Miss Barton out of Cuba and quickly sent her back again. She was not, however, permitted at once to continue her relief for the distressed Cubans. The military and naval authorities of the United States were as anxious not to aid Spain as the Spanish authorities were anxious that she should not aid the rebellious Cubans. Miss Barton tells the story of her departure and return. The order was for all American citizens to leave Havana, and the order was obeyed, but not without having laid the matter formally in council before my staff of assistants and taking their opinion and advice, which was to the effect that, while personally they would prefer to remain for the chance of the little good that might be accomplished, in view of the distress which we should give our friends at home and in fact the whole country when it should be known that we were inside that wall of fire that would confront us with no way of extricating or reaching us it seemed both wiser and more humane to leave and the ninth of april saw us again on shipboard a party of twenty bound for tampa we would not, however, go beyond, but made headquarters there, remaining within easy call of any need there might be for us. Here follow the few weeks of impending war. Do we need to live them over? Do we even want to recall them? Days when the elder men of thought and memory pondered deeply and questioned much. When the mother patriot though she were, uttered her sentiments through choking voice and tender, trembling words, and the young men, caring nothing, fearing nothing, rushed gallantly on to doom and to death. To how many households, alas, these days recall themselves in tones never to be forgotten. Notwithstanding all this excitement and confusion, and all the pressure that weighed upon him, our good president still remembered the suffering, dying reconcentrados, and requested that a ship be provided as quickly as possible, loaded from the ware-rooms of the indefatigable Cuban Relief Committee in New York, and be sent for the relief of the sufferers in Cuba whenever they could be reached. One need not say with the promptness this committee acted, and I was informed that the state of Texas, laden with 1,400 tons of food, would shortly leave New York en route for Key West, and it was the desire of that committee and the government that I take command of the ship and with my staff and such assistance as I would select, undertake the getting of that food to its destination. Some members of the staff were in New York, and with Dr. Hubble in charge, sailed from that port on Saturday, the 23rd of April. A hasty trip from Washington, gathering up the waiting staff at Tampa, and pushing on by the earliest train 
brought us to Key West in time to meet the state of Texas as she arrived, board her, and take charge of the snug little ship that was henceforth to take its place in American history. She was well built, but by no means new nor handsome. Her dull black hull could in no way compare with the snow-white, green and red-striped hospital ships, those heralds of relief that afterwards graced the waters of that bay. Still, she was firm, sound, heavy-laden, and gave promise of some good to someone at some future day, that day being only when the great war monsters should have peeled out to the world that an entrance was made on the coast of Cuba and we would be invited to follow. By the authorities at Washington, the state of Texas had been consigned to the protection of the Navy, and accordingly we must report our arrival. This was done to the senior officer, representing Admiral Sampson, in the port, Captain Harrington of the Monitor Puritan. This brought at once a personal call from the captain with an invitation to our entire staff to visit his beautiful ship the following day. The launch of the Puritan was sent to take us, and not only was the ship inspected, but the dainties of his elegant tea-table as well. When all was over, the graceful launch returned us safely to our ship, with grateful memories on the part of the younger members of our company, who had never chanced to form an intimate acquaintance with a piece of shipping at once so beautiful and so terrible as that death-dealing engine of destruction. I record this visit and courtesy on the part of Captain Harrington as the first of an unfailing series of kindnesses extended by the Navy to the Red Cross from first to last. There was no favor too great, no courtesy too high, to be cheerfully rendered on every occasion. The memories of pitiful Cuba would not leave us, and knowing that under our decks were fourteen hundred tons of food for the want of which its people were dying, the impulse to reach them grew very strong, and a letter was addressed to Admiral Sampson. This brought immediately the launch of the New York to the side of our ship, and Captain Chadwick, the gallant officer whom no one forgets, stepped lightly on board to deliver the written message from the Admiral, or rather to take me to the New York. Nothing could have exceeded the courtesy of the Admiral, but we were acting from entirely opposite standpoints. I had been requested to take a ship, and by every means in my power get food into Cuba. He, on the other hand, had been commanded to take a fleet, and by every means in his power keep food out of Cuba. When one compared the two ships lying side by side, and thought of a contest of effort between them, the situation was ludicrous. 
and yet the admiral did not absolutely refuse to give me a flag of truce and attempt an entrance into Havana, but he disapproved it, feared the results for me, and acting in accordance with his highest wisdom and best judgment, I felt it to be my place to wait. The delay which resulted was annoying but not wholly unprofitable, and there came a time when the army and navy were glad enough to have the American Red Cross in Cuba. On June 20th, the state of Texas sailed from Key West with orders to find Admiral Sampson and report to him. They found him a few days later off Santiago, in time for their share in the stirring events which accompanied and followed the destruction of Cervera's fleet, the Battle of San Juan Hill, and the surrender on July 17th of the harbor and city of Santiago. When the city had been formally surrendered, and a sufficient number of mines had been removed from the harbor to permit American vessels to enter, a very gracious compliment was paid to Clara Barton by the victorious United States Navy. The first vessel to enter the harbor was not the flagship of either the Admirals Sampson or Schley, but the State of Texas, under command of Clara Barton. Perhaps that may be called the crowning moment of her life. Clara Barton was more than seventy-eight years old, but she stood erect on the deck of her vessel, modestly appreciative and quietly thankful, not so much for the honor that had come to her as for the opportunity of serving. Miss Barton returned to Washington in November 1898. The work which she went to Cuba to perform, that of relieving the Cuban reconcentrados was never wholly accomplished. That relief came with the freedom of Cuba, and for this she was profoundly thankful. But she never ceased to feel sad when she thought of the people who suffered during those weeks of waiting while her vessel was packed with the supplies which the people so sorely needed. Cuba was a hard field full of heartbreaking memories, she wrote. It gave the first opportunity to test the first cooperation between the United States and its supplemental handmaiden, the Red Cross. While this cooperation was incomplete, its results were most beneficial, as many an American soldier and surgeon can testify. At the close of the war, the Congress of the United States tendered the thanks of the nation to Clara Barton in the following resolution which was introduced in the Senate by the venerable Senator Huar, and unanimously adopted. Resolved that the thanks of Congress be presented to Clara Barton of Massachusetts, founder of the Institution of the Red Cross, and to the officers and agents of the Society of the Red Cross for their humane 
and beneficent service to humanity in relieving the distress of the Armenians and other suffering persons in Turkey, and in ministering to the sufferings caused by pestilence in the United States, and for the like ministration and relief given by them to both sides in the Spanish West Indies during the present war. An even higher mark of appreciation was contained in the annual message of President McKinley. In this connection, it is a pleasure for me to mention in terms of cordial appreciation the timely and useful work of the American National Red Cross, both in relief measures preparatory to the campaigns, in sanitary assistance at several of the camps of assemblage, and later, under the able and experienced leadership of the President of the Society, Miss Clara Barton, on the fields of battle and in the hospitals at the front in Cuba. Working in conjunction with the governmental authorities, and under their sanction and approval, and with the enthusiastic cooperation of many patriotic women and societies in the various states, the Red Cross has fully maintained its already high reputation for intense earnestness and ability to exercise the noble purposes of its international organization, thus justifying the confidence and support which it has received at the hands of the American people. To the members and officers of this society, and all who aided them in their philanthropic work, the sincere and lasting gratitude of the soldiers and the public is due and is freely accorded. In tracing these events, we are constantly reminded of our obligations to the Divine Master for his watchful care over us and his safe guidance, for which the nation makes reverent acknowledgment and offers humble prayer for the continuance of his favor. End of chapter 14